Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we got off to a rough start for the month of May. The Dow Jones down 622 points uh, at the close. In fact, we were having a positive week until today, and today wiped out all of the week's gains. So we ended up with the second consecutive weekly decline. It does look like there's a pretty good chance that this correction has finally run its course and we're headed back down to potentially challenge or maybe even take out the March lows. Remember, when we were bouncing around those lows, I did predict that we would have a rally. I thought we would have a bear market rally, a counter-cyclical rally. I mean, based on the Fed throwing the kitchen sink at the market, clearly there was going to be some kind of bounce. Uh, the market was oversold. Uh, people came in, you know, the dip buyers and of course, then the rally kind of took on a life as a, of its own as traders be, began looking beyond the recession to the recovery, right? Once we turned back the economy, right, turned it back on, flipped the switch, and people went back to work and the customers uh, went back to uh, the stores or the shops or the airlines or whatever they were doing pre-corona, uh, the market started you know, to look beyond uh, the, uh, the mountain to the valley on the other side, and they liked what they saw, right? So we started to discount uh, the recovery. Well, I think now that uh, rosy scenario is being called into question as reality rears its head, as companies warn on earnings, withdraw guidance, cut dividends. And, and people start to really appreciate the fact that even when the governments finally get around uh, to saying we can go back to work, we can go back to shopping, uh, that a lot of people won't do that, especially given a lot of the perverse incentives uh, that the government has put in place uh, that are going to encourage uh, people not to return to work. Uh, so I think now people are starting to price some of the optimism back out of the market and we'll see what happens. Meanwhile, we did get a bid again today in gold and gold stocks. So they ended up 
closing the week out on a positive note. And it wasn't just stocks that got beat up today. Uh, High-yield bonds, so corporate debt, uh, I think it had its weakest uh, day in about a month in the high-yield market, otherwise known as the junk bond market. You know, I talked on my podcast yesterday about the stories that I had read about um, the Trump administration considering punishing China, uh, you know, making them pay for infecting us with this virus uh, by maybe defaulting or canceling out uh, the U.S. treasuries that the Chinese owned. And so today the rumor was officially denied. I don't know how seriously they were considering it, but, you know, you never believe a rumor until it's denied. Uh, But of course, if the U.S. government was thinking about doing something like this, uh, the last thing they would do is uh, say that they were because that would give the Chinese the opportunity to sell their bonds before we had a chance uh, to default on them. Uh, But remember what I said yesterday, that this was very, very dangerous ground that uh, the president was stepping on uh, just to merely suggest that the U.S. could selectively default on bonds because we believe uh, that the nation that owns them uh, wronged us in some way, because not only would that send a chill uh, through the Chinese, but through the whole world, because everybody would realize uh, that they potentially could find themselves in similar circumstances. And so both Trump and Larry Kudlow today threw cold water on that idea. And in fact, uh, both of them said that uh, U.S. Treasury commitment uh, was sacrosanct, Uh, that the full faith and credit of the United States would never be compromised, and that don't worry, uh, China, we are going to pay you. And again, you would expect them to say that no matter their intention. But, you know, the fact that a rumor like this gets started, again, it makes people think, right? It calls into question the risk of owning so many treasuries, let alone the inflation risk. But now this type of default risk Uh, really calls into question the wisdom, and I I would put that in quotes, of owning uh, all these treasuries, of having so much exposure uh, to U.S. debt in the first place. So it's just another reason to sell treasuries as if you didn't already have trillions of reasons uh, to to do so. But, you know, I thought one of the interesting elements of the uh, talks, first with Trump, See, when Trump said, well, you know, we're not going to do that. We're not going to default, right? We don't want to call into question our uh, sovereign credit risk, uh, the strength of the dollar. Uh, Trump said that we have other ways of making the Chinese pay. We can do it with tariffs. And, you know, the number that he was throwing around was like a trillion dollars. So like, yeah, well, we'll get a trillion dollars out of China with tariffs. Of course, what the president doesn't seem to understand is that the Chinese don't pay those tariffs. The American consumers pay those tariffs, either when they buy Chinese goods or when they don't buy Chinese goods, but have to buy more expensive goods from some other uh, supplier to avoid those tariffs. So it's the Americans that pay. It's like they're already suffering enough uh, from the recession. Now you want to kick them while they're down uh, by imposing tariffs on them as well. But, you know, the president is still under the impression uh, that the Chinese will pay the tariffs and that somehow he has the ability to tax the Chinese when he doesn't. The American government can only tax American citizens. Uh, We can't tax the Chinese citizens other than through the inflation tax, which we're doing. When the Federal Reserve prints money, uh, that inflation tax hits anyone anywhere in the world who owns U.S. dollars or any U.S. dollar denominated debt. So it's the Fed that can tax the Chinese 
uh, not not the U.S. government, although the U.S. government kind of indirectly does it because the U.S. government runs the deficits, which the Federal Reserve chooses to monetize through inflation, which levies the tax uh, on anybody that owns dollars, which would include the Chinese. And if the Chinese are smart, they will bail on their dollars and their U.S. treasuries. But also, when I was watching Kudlow, you know, Kudlow was being interviewed by a number of people on CNBC today, including his old partner, um, Jim Cramer. And, you know, in addition to being uh, a host of a talk show and, you know, this great former hedge fund manager, great trader, he's also a a restaurateur. Apparently, uh, Kramer opened up a small restaurant, I think, in Brooklyn, a Mexican restaurant or something like that. So he owns his business. And he is talking to his old pal and former partner, Larry Kudlow, now a top advisor to the president. And he is talking about the problem he is having now, uh, potentially getting people to come back to work because he can't compete with the government that is paying them more money not to work than what he was paying and is prepared to pay for them to work. And of course, not working is a lot more pleasant than working. And if you can get paid more money not to work, Uh, you really put the employer uh, in a difficult position because he doesn't just have to match the government. He has to really beat the government in order to compensate for the fact that Kramer's offer of payment uh, includes working. And so, you know, you got to pay people more to work than not work. So it's in a difficult situation. And he talked about those perverse incentives. And then Larry Kudlow kind of reluctantly, yeah, you know, we knew about that. But, you know, it's temporary. And so we really want to have incentives to work, not to work. So it was almost a tacit admission that this was a dumb idea. But he couldn't come right out and say that. So all he said was, well, you know, it's only temporary. Those benefits will run out. Let's see. Let's see how temporary they are, because we know that a lot of people are going to put pressure uh, to extend those benefits. And we'll see uh, where the Trump administration comes down on that. But I thought the most ridiculous part of the uh, the the Kudlow uh, Kramer interview was then Kramer talked about, you know, even when the uh, restaurant industry comes back, right, or when everybody's allowed to go out and we still have to operate, but maybe with some social distancing, maybe we have to have uh, more distance between the tables, or maybe people just don't want to come to the restaurants. They're just a little worried. Why take any unnecessary chances? Uh, and of course, we could still be in a recession, and fewer people eat in restaurants during recessions anyway. So what Kramer said to Kudlow is, hey, we need some help. The government needs to help me out and other restaurant owners out uh, through the slow times. That We need to have some kind of government aid until the restaurant business comes back to normal because I can't operate if I only have 50% of my customers and half the revenue because I still have all the rent, I have the payrolls, I have other expenses, And if I lose half my revenue, I'm going to go out of business. So I need the government to support my restaurant until the market can support it with a return to normal, which I thought was completely ridiculous for Kudlow to say that about his restaurant. I mean, first of all, what has he got? One little restaurant? How much could it possibly cost this guy? I mean, isn't he paid like a million dollars or two million dollars a year by CNBC to host a talk show? I mean, doesn't he have enough money left over to cover some of this overhead during a slow time? I mean, is he really that broke? I mean, I thought he was a very successful uh, investor at one time. I mean, doesn't he have a lot of money? Can't he fund his own restaurant? He's got one little restaurant in Brooklyn, a, a Mexican joint. I mean, come on, Jim Cramer, if you can't 
stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I mean, literally. I mean, you are a small business owner. Deal with that problem. You know, you have to be able to fund your restaurant during bad economic times. You can't ask the government to bail you out until people decide they want to go to your restaurant. What if they never decide? What if what if actually people stop going to the restaurant because they don't like the food? What, what if that's the reason? How do you know why they're not there? But somehow he's going to have to keep getting a government aid. Look, shut down the restaurant if you don't want to be an entrepreneur. You know, as I said on my prior podcast, that is part of the risks. There are a lot of benefits owning your own business, right? Working for yourself. You can make a lot of money when times are good. But not only could you lose money when times are bad, but you have to have reserves. You have to keep money saved when you're operating a business because you never know when there's going to be some type of a downturn. And so if Kramer wants to be in the restaurant business, he shouldn't expect the taxpayers to bail him out. He should be bailing himself out. He should be setting aside money and not opening up a business unless you have enough reserves uh, to see yourself through. Now, I recognize that one of the big problems that businesses have is government, both the burden of paying for the cost to comply with regulations and the cost of paying taxes. I mean, if government was smaller and didn't tax and regulate as much, a lot of restaurants that go out of business would survive, right? A a lot of restaurants that are struggling, that are barely making it, would be okay, right? So you have to be able to overcome uh, that barrier. You've got to be much better uh, than the market would ordinarily require because you've got to cover the added burden of government. So make government smaller. I'm all for that. But the only way to make government smaller is to cut government spending. That's how you, uh, you know, help the economy by lightening the burden of government, by freeing up resources that the government was consuming and freeing them back up to the private sector to be put to more productive use. And yes, cut regulations. But to say that we need government checks, that the government somehow has to provide money uh, to the restaurants and they got to provide money to everybody. I mean, you know, everybody is going to be impacted. Uh, by a recession. Everybody's sales are going to be down. So I thought it was ridiculous that a supposedly very rich guy like like Kramer is basically begging his buddy to interfere and, and use his connections with, uh, with, with, with the president to try to get some money uh, for the restaurateurs to tide him over until we come out of this, uh, this recession. Now, another, another point, though, I wanted to make about the, the risk of business, and I did hear this discussed, too, on, uh, on CNBC, uh, was the legal liability. And I talked about this like from day one, the legal liability that businesses are going to face from people who potentially contract the coronavirus and they want to blame it or say they got it at that business, that establishment. And this risk is your employees and and your customers, right? Because you open up, let's say in the example of Kramer's restaurant, let's say he opens up his restaurant and somebody comes into the restaurant has a meal, and I don't know, a couple days later, what do you know? They got the coronavirus. And they say, aha, I must have got the virus at Kramer's restaurant. I'm going to sue Jim because, you know, it's his fault that I got coronavirus, right? Or what if Jim tells his worker, hey, you got to come to work, um, and, and the worker shows up, and then he gets the coronavirus, claims he got it at work, and he's, well, I'm going to sue Jim. He, he required me to go to work, even though there was the coronavirus, and now I got sick. And so I want my money, right? And so I know they're talking about uh, instituting some type of uh, law 
that would limit the liability or make it impossible for people to sue a business if they happen to get the coronavirus. And it's even unfortunate that we even need such a law, but I would certainly support it given uh, how ridiculously uh, corrupt our legal system has become and how easy it is to sue uh, businesses, which is one of the reasons that being in business is very expensive and why a lot of people fail uh, you know, from owning businesses. But look, as far as I'm concerned, when you patronize a business or you know, go to work, there are certain risks that you accept as part of the deal, right? I mean, there are a number of occupations that are known to be risky where there are you can potentially be maimed or you could be killed. There are occupations that are more hazardous. And generally, employers have to pay workers more money to compensate them for exposing themselves to a higher amount of, of risk. Now, sure, if your employer or, or a company is actually actually negligent, right, to the point where you're exposed to a rich that risk that you didn't bargain for, right? Yes, I believe that there can be lawsuits uh, for gross negligence and things like that. But if you accept known risks and then something happens, well, I mean, that's part of life, right? And that's no different with the coronavirus. Look, you know, people go to work, they can be in a car accident on the way to work. It's like, oh, it's my boss's fault. He required me to come to work. And on my way, I got into an accident. So I'm going to sue my boss. First of all, nobody requires you to come to work. You only come to work if you want to get paid. That's the deal, right? So even if an entrepreneur calls its empl- his employees back, Jim Cramer says, hey, everybody, come back to work. And even if he pays people enough money uh, to get them to turn down the unemployment benefits or whatever, but he tells people to come back to work, they don't have to come back. They can say, Jim, you know, I don't want to take the risk. Uh, you know, I don't want to get sick, so I don't want to come back to work. And if Cramer can't pay that employee enough money to get him to come in, well, then that's that's it. But if the worker accepts the money and he comes to work and he gets sick, well, that's it. I mean, he took a risk. He knew the virus was out there, but he wanted the money. And so he accepted the job along with the risk that comes along with it. The same thing for customers. Look, anybody that goes to a restaurant uh, over the next few months, if you get the coronavirus, well, that's just it. That's the lucky break or unlucky break. I mean, first of all, to prove that you even got it at a particular restaurant. I mean, what if you got it on the way to the restaurant? I mean, who knows where exactly the point of contact is? But of course, you know, you get involved in litigation, you get sued, you end up settling, you know, you get shaken down. But the fact of the matter is, if you go out in public and you get the virus, that's your own fault. What were you doing out in public? And that's why I think not that many people are going to want to rush back uh, to the restaurants and to the bars or and to the hotels and the airplanes or the, wherever the concerts is. They, they know they don't want to take the risk of getting the virus. And to the extent that somebody takes that risk, well, I mean, you got to live with the consequences, right? Just like if you take the risk of getting in a car accident on your way to a restaurant, right? It's your own, you know, but people are going to try to avoid these risks. But hopefully we do get some type of law that mitigates uh, frivolous lawsuits that would really, you know, add insult to injury uh, to entrepreneurs and give them yet another reason not to want to go back into business if they're worried about getting sued uh, by their employees and by their customers.
Another uh, you know, point I wanted to focus on is I was reading about this $1 trillion bailout for the, the states, states and local governments. And I think Nancy Pelosi over in the House is really pushing for this trillion dollar uh, bailout. And, you know, obviously, 100% against this. I went over the moral hazard when uh, on my last podcast. But I want to talk about it from a, a different angle this time that I really hadn't addressed. And that is the moral hazard of the individual state governors of knowing or having confidence that their residents are going to be bailed out by the federal government and that the governments, the state governments will be bailed out. This is influencing their decisions. You see, when a governor decides you know, to order the closure of certain businesses, right, lock down the economy, they should be weighing the cost and benefits of that type of decision, right? Uh, but if the governor believes that whatever revenues the state loses in taxation, they're just going to get that from the federal government. And if the states believe that their own citizens, that they force not to work, if they're going to get bailed out by the federal government, if they're all the people that their local laws are forcing out of jobs, if they know they can count on the federal government to make up their lost pay, then they're more likely to just order these shutdowns and, 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 and have, you know, ha- have the whole economy shut down because they don't think they have to suffer the cost because they expect the federal government to shoulder that burden. Look, if Donald Trump had made it clear and the U.S. Congress had made it clear, look, each state makes its own decisions. You decide what you want to do to mitigate the risk, the health risk of the, of the virus, but you're, each state is responsible for bearing its own costs of its own decisions. So if you decide to order certain businesses closed, then you need to deal with the economic damage in your own state. So if you want to raise unemployment benefits, then you do it yourself. You raise your own taxes to do it, right? So if each state knew that it had to bear the full cost of its decisions, then it would make better decisions as far as the cost-benefit analysis. But if you're a governor and you think, hey, screw it, doesn't matter uh, what our residents lose in lost income because the federal government's going to write a big check and it doesn't matter what you know happens to our state revenues because we're going to get that money from the government. In fact, in a way, some of these states are probably incentivized to uh, be even harder on closing stuff down and shutting stuff down to make uh, or to put themselves in an even bigger financial hole. So now the bailout is even more necessary. It's like every state is competing for which state can be in the most financial trouble so it can get a, a, a bigger slice of the, the bailout money that's going to be earmarked for the state and local government. So, you know, this is the, the, the path that the federal government has taken us down by telling all these states, we got your back. It doesn't matter what you do, because if they had to shoulder the costs, then I think they would make much more responsible decisions on how they operate. I think maybe a lot of the states would be, uh, you know, following the Swedish example of how they approach this if they had a deal with paying for the costs themselves. Now, while I'm talking about Congress, too, I, I you know, had one little uh, political topic that I wanted to touch on 
uh, before I you know move forward and get. I'm going to do the questions again. I got a bunch of questions. Seems like now every Friday, I am answering the questions that people are paying to ask me on these live chats. And again, if you're going to ask me a question today, uh, I'm not going to answer it today because I'm I'll get to it uh, next week. But I think it is the ultimate in irony, and it's not like you know I didn't see this thing coming. But now you've got these official uh, sexual harassment charges uh, uh, against uh, Joe Biden, right? And, you know, you've got a woman out there, Tara Reid, made some allegations. Uh, and, you know, I don't know whether she's telling the truth or not, right? I mean, I'm always willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the accused. And I think people are innocent until proven guilty. I thought that way uh, in Kavanaugh. You know, I, you know, when when that happened, but that's not how a lot of these women in the Me Too movement, the big Democrats looked at it. Because if you remember when Christine Blasey Ford had these ridiculous, absurd, completely uncredible and unsubstantiated allegations against Kavanaugh, no matter how absurd the claim was, the women were saying, well, we got to believe her. You know, victims must be believed no matter how ridiculous their story is. And even if there isn't a shred of actual evidence, we still must believe them. Okay, well, if that's the standard, why are those same women calling Tara Reid a liar? I mean, if you just look on the face of it, if you look at Tara Reid's allegations against Biden, I mean, they make a lot more sense. I mean, they're more believable to me than uh, the the Blasley Ford allegations uh, against Kavanaugh. And there's actually a little bit more evidence to substantiate it. Not that I'm taking her side. I'm just saying that if you are looking at it objectively and you are taking both circumstances, that Reed is more believable than Blasley Ford. Yet all the women who were like, oh yeah, we 100% believe Blasley Ford. Now they're like, oh, Tara Reed's a liar. And why is Tara Reed a liar? Well, because... You know, Joe Biden's such a good guy. How do they know that Joe Biden's a good guy? How many of these people, too, that are defending Joe Biden really know what a great guy was? And why wasn't Kavanaugh a good guy? Why weren't they willing to give Kavanaugh, uh, you know, the same uh, benefit of the doubt that they're, that they're giving to Joe Biden? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Right, this is the double standard uh, that, that they have, right? Now, of course, what I think the Democrats should be doing. I think they're making a mistake politically because Joe Biden is not their best nominee. I mean, they should realize that, right? They should, what they should do, and maybe I shouldn't even say this because I don't want to give these guys any ideas, but what I would do, right, if I was in the Democratic Party, I would be like, wait a minute, here we have an opportunity to prove that we're not a bunch of hypocrites and get rid of Biden at the same time. We killed two birds with one stone. Why don't we just believe Tara Reid? Why don't we say that, yes, she's accused Biden of sexual harassment, therefore Biden is guilty, 
simply based on the fact that he was accused. And you know what, Joe Biden, you got to go. You cannot be at the top of our ticket. We can't have a womanizer, an abuser as the nominee of the Democratic Party. And if everybody came down on him and, and rallied around Tara Reid the way they all rallied around Blaisley Ford, he might have to step down. I know it'd be a tough fight, but if he stepped down, I mean, now they could pick who they want. They can hand pick the best uh, candidate uh, to go up against Trump. So I think they have an actual opportunity here that they're blowing by not taking advantage of it. But what I just wanted to highlight is the sheer hypocrisy of the left. See, I am consistent. I am not willing to just accept these allegations on face value, right? Just like I didn't accept Blaisley Ford's, although hers seems so ridiculous as to be absurd. These are at least rational, reasonable. It's possible uh, that this woman is telling the truth and that Joe Biden is lying. In fact, since Joe Biden is a politician and he's a very successful politician, he's a professional liar. He lies all the time. So why would we assume he's telling the truth now when he probably told so many lies? I mean, that's how you are successful in politics is you're a good liar. Because if you're honest, you, you don't go very far in politics. You can't survive. Even if you manage to get elected once, you're not going to get reelected. In order to be as successful as Joe Biden, who's been a politician his entire life, right? And he's had high offices, including vice president of the United States. You think Joe Biden had as long a career in politics as he did by being honest? Of course not. He succeeded by lying. And so good chance he's lying about this too. Anyway, before I get into the questions, just want to call attention. You know, I noticed my last two podcasts that I put up on YouTube didn't quite get as many views. You know, the ones before that, I had 120, 130,000 views. We had a drop down of like 75,000, the one I did a couple days ago. Not really sure why. Maybe the markets weren't down and people weren't tuning in. But, you know, I actually thought the last two podcasts had a lot of really good stuff in them. And so if you didn't listen on Shift Radio or if you didn't watch on YouTube, uh, when you're finished with this one, make sure and go back and, and catch those last two if you happened uh, to miss them. But I'm going to go to the questions. Okay, first one, Peter, if you could ask a few questions at a Fed press briefing, what would they be? Look, I would love uh, to be able to ask questions of uh, Chairman Powell. Uh, and, you know, there's so many questions that I would ask. Um, I don't know, you know, what the, you know, but you only get a chance probably to ask one I would probably say, uh, Chair Powell, you know, your predecessor, Ben Bernanke, when he did QE1, uh, Congress, he was asked by Congress if the Fed was monetizing the debt. And his response was no, because we were only temporarily buying U.S. Treasuries, that the Fed, the Fed would be selling those bonds back into the market as soon as the emergency was over. So given that uh, none of those bonds were ever sold, and given that the national debt is now approaching, uh, or the Fed's balance sheet is now approaching $7 trillion. Would you say that Ben Bernanke was wrong when he said that the Fed was not monetizing the debt? And will you now correct Ben Bernanke and officially admit that the Federal Reserve is, in fact, monetizing U.S. government debt, right? I guess that would be the, the first question I would ask him. And let's see him weasel his way out of that one. <laughs> Anyway, uh, next question is, oh, that one was from the Commodore. The next one is from Christopher Morrison. 
Uh, the U.S. is second in the world for manufacturing and exports, which contradicts what you said. Uh, is the data skewed? No, 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 it doesn't contradict what I said. Then lastly, if free market works so well, how does socialism creep in in the first place? Socialism creeps in because of government, right? In fact, it's because the free market works so well that there's wealth for the socialists to redistribute. You see, what happens is when you have a, a free market economy, capitalist economy, everybody gets richer. Everybody benefits. But clearly, not everybody is equal because not everybody contributes equally to society, right? And those who contribute more as far as you know, starting companies and producing goods and, and providing services and creating jobs, right? The people who really succeed the most, right? Take a guy like Henry Ford, who revolutionizes the automobile industry, you know, uh, discovers or pioneers the production line and finds a way to drastically reduce the cost of cars so that now middle-class Americans can afford what was once a toy for the rich, right? People benefited by him or a Thomas Edison invents electricity and now people can have light in, 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 at night instead of candles they can have electric light bulbs right I mean so you think about all the great inventions and how much society benefited from those inventions yes the inventors got rich but their their reward was in proportion to the benefits that their inventions bestowed on their customers in fact the customers benefited a lot more collectively than the inventors and the entrepreneurs. So whenever you have capitalism and certain people get a lot richer than others others by, you know, because they deserve it, you're always going to have greed. You're always going to have envy. You're always going to have people that are resentful of people that have other mo more money than they do. And then you get some politician that plays into that, into that uh, jealousy and into that envy and says, you know what? That person is really rich and you're poor, even though you're a lot richer than you would be under socialism. But then it's like, hey, why should he have all that money? You work hard too. He's exploiting you. Let's get even. Let's take some of the money he has. After all, he has so much, doesn't need all that money. You're as deserving as he is. And you know, then, then the, the, the idea is that, hey, the reason that guy is rich is he's greedy and he's exploiting people, but you're too nice. You don't want to exploit people. You don't want to be greedy. That's why you're not rich. So let's level the playing field with government. That's the problem. Capitalism succeeds so much that it is the source of its own demise because it enables the, um, the disparity in wealth that feeds envy of the voters. That's why in order to preserve capitalism, you have to have a limit on democracy uh, so that capitalism can keep on delivering uh, those benefits. But as far as the other part of the question about the U.S. being uh, second in manufacturing, look, I don't say that the U.S. doesn't manufacture a lot. The problem is relative to how much we consume, that's the problem. We have a huge trade deficit in manufactured goods. So even though we manufacture a lot, we import even more. And of course, a lot of the stuff that we manufacture, a lot of things that get counted as manufactured in America, they're not really manufactured here. They are assembled here, right? We import all the components that are manufactured in Asia or someplace else. And then when those components come here, we assemble them, right? But the actual manufacturing may take place abroad, uh, but we end up assembling them here. And so we take credit for the manufacturing, even though we, we assembled it. And, uh, you know, an example I give is Callaway Golf Clubs, which were assembled in the U.S., except the head is manufactured someplace else. 
The shaft is manufactured someplace else. The grip is manufactured someplace else. Callaway imports them all and it, you know, pops them on and there, there they go, right? So they didn't really manufacture it. Uh, they assembled it. But the problem is the differential, right? Between what we import and what we export is enormous. We have these huge trade deficits and they're going to get even worse because now we're paying people not to work, right? And we're just printing money. And so they're going to have to buy more stuff. That's why the trade deficits are going up. Uh, and of course, we're, you know, we're a net debt, uh, debtor nation by a massive amount. Americans own a lot less foreign assets than foreigners own American assets. We're the world's biggest debtor. We owe more than all the other debtor nations combined. And we're about to extend our lead as far as how much debt we have uh, based on current policy. Uh, next question. Mm. This is a $100 question. So I better give my $100 answer from Roberto uh, Bedoya. Mr. Schiff, I'm hoping to one day invest in a small business. Do you see any sectors of the economy providing opportunities for entrepreneurs during the upcoming depression? Look, there's always going to be opportunity. Uh, you just have to be able to find it. I don't know, you know, what your areas of expertise are. But look, whenever there's change, whenever people are doing things differently, there's opportunities uh, because that's the benefit of a free market. Try to figure out what the public is going to want and then supply it to them or try to anticipate. That's the mark of a really good entrepreneur. Figure out what the consumer wants before he even wants it or realizes that he wants it and then find a way to deliver it to him and do it better, you know, for less money or higher quality than someone else. So there's always going to be opportunity. The problem is the government will always be there to limit that opportunity uh, with regulation and taxation. So unfortunately, there may be better opportunities outside the United States uh, than inside the United States. Next question is from the UK, uh, Wikinwashi or 121. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. As a UK investor holding majority US gold miners, Barrick, Agnigo, ETC, is there a risk that despite them rallying, I could lose money if the dollar crashes? No. I mean, there are definitely risks in gold mining, but a dollar crash is not one of them. In fact, a dollar crash is a positive because if the dollar is crashing, then gold is probably really going up. And even if it means that, uh, you know, the dollar cost of mining might be going up if your miners are being paid Australian dollars or Canadian dollars, and relative to the US dollar, uh, those currencies are, are going up. If we have a dollar crash, uh, gold's gonna be going up in terms of all currencies. It'll just be going up, I think, faster or more in dollars. And so, no. And a lot of people look at stocks and they see the prices in dollars and they think they're in dollars. No, that's just how the asset is being priced on your brokerage statement. And that's just the currency that you traded in. If you wanna sell, the buyer is gonna give you dollars. But if the dollar crashes, then when you go to sell, you're gonna get a whole lot more dollars, right, for your shares. So the dollar going down means the price of your shares is gonna go up, all else being equal. Next question is from CH. I'm an insurance risk manager. How will the economy affect my industry? Uh, look, obviously, I'm not sure what type of insurance uh, you are dealing with, but I think insurance companies in general are gonna be hard hit uh, by this. I mean, maybe there's going to be more claims. Uh, and I think insurance companies, of course, invest. They take premiums that they collect and they invest. And now they're getting a hit uh, in uh, the stock market, in the bond market. And these low interest rates obviously reduce the yield 
uh, on bonds. So yeah, I think insurance companies are getting hit hard and uh, will continue to uh, be hit. Uh, ultimately, they're going to have to raise premiums, uh, which is just going to be another way the public is going to pay for all this inflation is uh, insurance premiums are going to be going up. Uh, from Atmar Zire, should we just eliminate or ban debt and that will fix our problems? No, of course not. I mean, government shouldn't be borrowing, right? I mean, to the extent that government wants to pay for something, it should raise taxes to pay for it. And if the public is not willing to finance it, then the government shouldn't do it, right? We should not be borrowing. Now, I would say that if the government or a government is going to borrow uh, for infrastructure, let's say they're going to borrow money uh, to build a road, uh, then to the extent that maybe you have a toll on the road and you can collect tolls and you can use the toll money to repay the debt, in that case, it may make sense. Uh, depending on the terms, rather than just raising taxes on everybody, because some people might not use the, the, the bridge or the road. So you can uh, put the toll, but you don't get the tolls until people actually use the road. So we borrow the money today and then we pay it back with the toll revenue, which would make sense. So there are certain circumstances where I would say a government borrowing is okay. And maybe during emergencies, you know, like a war, we borrowed money during World War II. I mean, okay, I mean, there's a war, we'll pay it back after the war, but during peacetime for normal government expenditures, if you can't tax for it, then you shouldn't do it. If the public is not willing to pay for it, then the public shouldn't have it, right? So there should be no government borrowing, but as far as the private sector, sure, but the government shouldn't subsidize it and, 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 and make it easier because what we want is businesses to borrow money to make capital investments. That benefits everybody. It benefits the lender because he gets a return on his capital. He gets interest. It benefits the borrower because he buys a, a piece of machinery that improves the productivity of his workforce. So now he can pay back the loan with his extra profits plus the interest. Society benefits now because there's more goods to buy so prices can come down. The workers benefit from those loans because now, now they're more productive because they have capital and because they're more productive, they can earn higher real wages. So that's fine. What I don't like is consumption uh, borrowing. I don't like it when people borrow to buy consumer goods or borrow to take a vacation. That is a bad use of credit because society doesn't benefit from that because there's no extra production. Uh, there's no capital investment. And unlike business loans, if I borrow money and I make a capital investment that makes my business more productive, I pay off my loan out of my increased productivity. So the loan pays for itself. But if I'm a consumer and I just borrow money to buy stuff and I don't acquire an asset that generates income, how do I repay the loan? I can't unless I just consume less in the future, which is the problem with consumer loans. If you borrow to consume today, you end up consuming less tomorrow because you have to pay for the money you borrowed plus interest. But the free market will sort all this out. I, the government doesn't have to ban consumer loans. Just stop subsidizing them and the market will raise interest rates on those type of loans, which are much riskier. Uh, and then there'll be less of them. Uh, next question. From Incidental Finding. How would this scenario be handled in a libertarian society? A patient in dire condition arrives at a hospital but has no health insurance. He has chosen not to purchase any. Would the hospital have the right to deny him care? Well, I'll tell you how it used to happen before the government got involved. You know, if somebody shows up at a hospital 
doctors, the hospital, they're going to help, right? I mean, doctors take a Hippocratic oath, right? I mean, they're going to help people and people become doctors because they want to help people. You know, before the government got involved in all this health insurance and before we had all the legal liability and the big malpractice premiums, right? Because now a lot of people are afraid to help because they're going to get sued. But before we had income taxes, before we had government subsidies, doctors worked on a lot of patients for free. If they can afford to pay, fine. If they couldn't, uh, they they provided their, their work. I mean, it gave doctors a lot of personal satisfaction to help people who needed help, people to heal people who are sick. So nobody that showed up wasn't going to be taken care of because they didn't have the money. I mean, that's I mean that's human nature. We're not going to just let somebody die, you know, because they they they, they don't have a, a a big enough bank account. So before government got involved, people weren't just dropping dead and dying uh, because they were poor. I mean. People took care of them. And there were charities that helped reimburse doctors and hospitals uh, to the extent that it wasn't just provided pro bono. Uh, you know, they, 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 they did this. But today, with doctors having to pay 40 or 50 percent of what they earn in income tax and with doctors having to spend so much money on malpractice insurance and with all the fear that if they help somebody and then they're going to get sued. Right. If, if something goes wrong, God forbid. I mean, we hold these doctors to a standard of perfection, which I think is ridiculous because some of the most incompetent people are lawyers and so many cases get screwed up and, you know, go try to file a legal malpractice claim. Uh, You know, it's much more difficult to sue your lawyer for malpractice than your doctor. Uh, But I think lawyers commit malpractice to a much greater degree. Sometimes doctors do their best, you know, and, and, you know, something goes wrong. You know, and now all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're vilified and they're sued. But I think because of the way the government has artificially increased the costs and the risks, uh, I think that's why more uh, people aren't getting help that would ordinarily get help. So no, in a free market under capitalism, people who are sick don't die. They get taken care of. They just don't get taken care of by the government. The government doesn't get involved. You have private charities and you have doctors and you have hospitals that are run by human beings that are not going to let another human being die because they don't have any money. Uh, Anyway, next up is uh, from Stephen in New Zealand. When are we going to get another episode of Peter Stiff from Ball Street? (laughs) Seriously, Peter, your comedy was damn funny. So this guy is asking, if you haven't seen my stand-up comedy routine, uh, you go go to YouTube and, and type in Peter Schiff stand-up comedy. And this was America's Funniest Reporter. I did this, oh, like six years ago, seven years ago, I forget. Um, and I, I put together a stand-up routine where I took all the stuff from my uh, talks that I would give on economics and, and, and the markets and investing. But, you know, and it was stuff that I would say that people would laugh, right? I mean, I was part of my normal uh, talks, but I knew people laughed. So I decided, okay, look, let me just turn it into a, uh, a stand-up routine. And I added the thing about uh, Peter Stiff. That was the only thing, that was the only new material uh, that I brought to the stand-up. But I came in second place. I forget, there was a couple of gals, they tied for first place. So maybe in theory, I was in third place. Charles Payne, by the way, was in fourth place. or third, He was right behind me. I forget who else was there, but uh, Charles was was third, I was second, and these two women uh, were first. 
Uh, but they, they each had their own routines. I forget how many of us. There was probably maybe a dozen of us that were up on stage that night. Maybe not quite that many. Maybe it was 10, I forget. But I had a lot of fun doing it. And I was really surprised that, how, I mean, I got a lot of laughs. I mean, they were eating it up uh, at, uh, this, uh, <laughs> at this event. So if you want to see it, uh, you can, you know, just watch it on YouTube. But it was funnier in person. I mean, to people that were being there, I mean, they were really, uh, really uh, uh, laughing. But I had, I had a lot of fun, uh, fun doing it. Uh, next question. You said that America was originally intended to be a republic, not a democracy. What are the specific differences between a republic and a democracy? Uh, do you think America will ever evolve into a dictatorship or socialism? Look, I hope we don't become a dictatorship, but we are certainly heading uh, down that path. That doesn't mean that we're going to get there, uh, but we are becoming more and more socialistic. But the difference between a Republican government and a, and a democracy, first of all, what would be a direct democracy? That would be where we just, everybody just votes, right? We just, we just the citizens directly vote on everything, right? Kind of like, you know, the old uh, Greek style democracy, everybody gets a vote, right? Well, then you can have a representative democracy where the people vote for representatives and then those representatives vote, right? So you have a little bit of a buffer between the people and the voting. So it's not a direct democracy. The people elect representatives who are supposedly smarter than the people, and then the representatives vote and they make the decisions. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're one step removed from a direct democracy. And so we have that, right? We have representative government because the people don't vote for the laws directly. They vote for representatives who supposedly know a little bit more, and then they, uh, they vote for the laws. But what we did as a republic, right, is we limit the voting. So in America, we had two houses. We had the Congress, which was elected by the people, and they were a deliberative body. But then we had the U.S. Senate, and the senators were appointed by state legislatures. So they weren't elected by anybody. They were appointed by elected officials. Um, and then the president, who was originally elected by the Electoral College, which was supposed to be a deliberative body. It, they weren't supposed to rubber stamp the popular vote. So then we had a president. And then the states had their own restrictions on the suffrage. You had to be 21, right? You had to be male, which is a distinction that you know wouldn't be required today, but it made a lot of sense back then based on the roles of the sexes. Um, they had property qualifications, poll taxes, literacy tests, I mean, there wasn't a concept that everybody is entitled to vote. You had to, you know, be worthy of a vote because they wanted to make sure that not every idiot was just voting, right? So you limit the number of people who can vote. And then think about how laws were passed in the United States, right? I mean, the House and the Senate had to separately pass a law, right? And, and by the way, to the senators, only one third of the senators were reappointed every two years, right? They were, the terms were staggered, right? By design to prevent some kind of popular uh, wave from you know, capturing more than one third of the Senate at any one time, even though the senators were, were appointed, not elected. But let's say uh, Congress passes a law, uh, the president who is one person could veto that law. So even if you get you know, a majority of the senators and the representatives voting for a law, one single man can thwart the will of that majority and veto that law. Then in order to override that veto, you need two thirds of the House and the Senate to come and override that veto. 
But even if that happens, let's say two-thirds of the House and the Senate override a presidential veto and a law is passed, five people on the Supreme Court can say that's unconstitutional and strike the whole thing down. So we have a constitution protecting us because the constitution limits the power of government. So even if the majority, even if the vast majority of people want to do something, if the constitution says you can't do it, then you can't do it. So we were a republic in that we, we, you know, we built all these protections and safeguards to insulate us uh, from just democracy. Democracy is like mobocracy, right? It's a mob rule. It's you do whatever the majority wants. And that's a horrible form of government. It's very, very oppressive, especially if you're in the minority, right? Our, the, a republic protects the rights of minorities from the majority. You know, there's an old joke about the definition of, of the difference between a, a republic and a democracy. A democracy is two uh, foxes and a chicken arguing over what they're going to have for dinner. Right? And a republic is a well-armed chicken challenging uh, the vote. So that's another way of, of thinking about it. Next question. Peter, I own all of your funds except the bond fund. Do you recommend your bond fund? And you can give me some information about it. Sure, I have five mutual funds. And one of them is a bond fund. And it is a uh, short-term duration and it is foreign currencies. And the bond fund has done very poorly relative to other bond funds because it hasn't really participated in the bubble in that we have kept our maturity short. So I've been willing to sacrifice return because when the bubble pops, I also don't want to have that risk. So what my bond fund is more for is to get out of the dollar. And of course, obviously, with the strong dollar over the last decade or so, uh, foreign bonds were not a great place to be. But I have a lot of clients who want to limit the equity portion of their portfolio. Obviously, I personally prefer owning stocks to bonds because I think inflation is going to be uh, better for equities. But to reduce the volatility of a portfolio, uh, bonds could be a portion. And certainly, as you get older and older and you want to take less risk, if you don't want to take the risk of the stock market, but you also want to minimize the risk of the dollar relative to other currencies, then you can buy foreign bonds instead of domestic bonds. But because we have bond bubbles all over the world, I'm keeping my maturity short. So I think once the dollar really tanks and we get a backup in interest rates, my bond fund will go from you know last place to first place. Uh, and I think that, you know, as far as bond funds are concerned, yeah, I think it's a great time to buy. You want to anticipate the dollar's decline. You want to anticipate an eventual rise in interest rates. And all of that is going to work in the advantage of my bond fund over other, other bond funds. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you shouldn't be 100% equities. So to the extent that you want to have an allocation to bonds, I have very, very high credit quality uh, shorter maturity bonds in my fund. And I think bonds in particular, foreign bonds, you know, it's a lot easier to buy foreign stocks. Foreign bonds, it's a whole different thing. It's really, really expensive. So for somebody who's investing $50,000, $100,000 and you want to do a foreign bond portfolio, forget about it. The best way to do it is by buying my bond fund as opposed to trying to buy the bonds directly because your costs will be much too high and you won't be able to build the type of diversified portfolio 
that you should really have. But again, anyone who wants to invest in my bond fund, uh, EPIBX, I think is the bond fund symbol. Uh, but you never, yeah, read a prospectus, check it out. You can buy it directly at europacificfunds.com uh, through Schwab, Fidelity, any of those discount brokers or at Euro Pacific uh, Capital through my brokers. If you have an account with me, if you don't have an account, open one up, right? At europac.com. Next question. Um, this is from Bridge Financial Inc. Can you explain why you are nervous about gold ETFs? Are trusts different? I thought money in these funds are purchasing shares uh, off other shareholders. Is that not the case? Look, I mentioned I was starting to get a little nervous about ETFs. Uh, where is my nervousness on a scale of one to 10, meaning 10 being the most nervous? I don't know, maybe a two. I mean, I think that it's possible that these funds don't own the gold that they claim, but it's more likely that they do. But the point is, why take a risk that you don't have to, right? I mean, why go to a, even when they say, you know, okay, everybody can go out, uh, even though the whole thing could be BS anyway. Hey, you know, you don't have to go to a restaurant, eat at home, you know, wait, wait it out for a while. Why risk getting coronavirus? Even if the whole thing is BS, you know, hey, hey, better safe than sorry, right? Um, and, and so, you know, just own the gold. It's not like it's hard to own your own gold. Just buy it yourself. You don't need to have an ETF. You don't need to pay the storage fees. Now, if it's in an IRA and you don't want to have to hassle with the extra cost of a self-directed IRA, in that case, it might make more sense uh, to get uh, some of these ETFs. And they're not all the same. I mean, some of them, I think, are in, in better, better than others. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is an extra layer of risk that you don't have when you own the gold yourself. Of course, although you can still lose it, you know, if you own physical gold, I mean, people have lost their gold. You know, you could forget the combination to your safe. You could forget where you buried it. I don't know. I mean, it's happened. So you always take a risk no matter what you do. Uh, but, you know, you, you, it's a question of diversification. Don't have all your, your gold in one place. So you can diversify where you have your gold. And that's what we're helping people do at Europe Pacific Capital with the Perth Mint, uh, at Gold Money I'm doing, uh, with Shift Gold. And you can have some of these uh, ETFs as well. Um, next question from Draghi Ivansky. What's the best way to protect investments in Australian gold miners, given that AUD gold price may go down if the dollar implodes? Look, I think if the dollar implodes, right, gold prices are going to go up in all currencies, including the Australian dollar. I believe that gold will go up less in Australian dollars than it will in U.S. dollars, but it's still going to go up a lot because if the dollar collapses, Right? That means this whole fiat-based monetary system has come to an end. And when it does, what is going to take its place? Gold. We're going to go back to a gold standard, and the price of gold is going to go up in terms of every fiat currency on this planet. Right? Now, I think it will go up much more in terms of dollars than it does in Aussie dollars, but Australian gold miners will still see the value of the gold they're mining Right? In Australian dollars, go up by much more than the cost of mining it based on what they have to pay their workers in Australian dollars. Uh, next up uh, from PV, what is your view on the ruble uh, or renminbi? Look, I think the Russian ruble is going to go up. I think the Chinese RMB is going to go up. Uh, both those currencies are going to go up against the dollar. Uh, so obviously, you know, on bonds, the question asks, yes, I would rather buy ruble denominated bonds or Chinese RMB denominated bonds than U.S. Treasuries. I think it. I think those currencies are more likely to go up. 
And so I think you're more likely to be repaid uh, uh, in, in currency that preserves more of its value than the dollar. Um, questions from Time and Bush. Peter, what do you think of reverse mortgages? Look, I mean, obviously, if you're older and you're looking at the concept of a reverse mortgage, what I don't like about it is that the money that you're getting, right, is, is, uh, is, is dollars. And if there's tremendous inflation, uh, that money that you're pulling out uh, is going to uh, lose purchasing power over time. And I think the reverse mortgages, you, you, you sign up and they, you get the checks over time. You don't just get one big lump sum. Uh, you just get sent checks and, and it's a predetermined amount of money. And as you're getting checks, you're reducing the equity uh, in your house. Right. And that's, you know, could really impact, I guess, you know, your heirs or whoever. Um, But you're going to get a fixed payment stream in U.S. dollars. And for that, you've mortgaged your house. And the problem is going to be what if really you have massive inflation. And so now you lose. Right. So under a normal mortgage, you borrow the money and inflation wipes out what you owe. Right. And so inflation helps you. But it would be the reverse if you took out a reverse mortgage and you're just getting a payment stream and now inflation is going to wipe out the value of that payment stream. So what I would do is I would sell my house, take the money, invest it in inflation hedges, and rent, right? I think that is the better uh, better approach. Um, next question. How did you become so knowledgeable in the markets, and what books or authors do you recommend as a young investor like myself? Well, I've answered this question many times. I credit my father, Erwin Schiff, uh, you know, his books on economics, The Biggest Con, if you could find that on Amazon or eBay, buy it. I ran out of copies a long time ago. I still have a few copies left of The Kingdom of Malt, so you can buy them at shiftbooks.com. We also have some Federal Mafias, which is the only book other than Fannie Hill in the United States to ever be banned by the U.S. government. Uh, now, that's not an economics book. It just gives you some insight into my father's thinking on taxes. I don't recommend that you follow his advice on not paying taxes, but you should understand how he came to his conclusions with respect to the illegality of the tax and the way it's uh, imposed and collected. But also, I read Austrian economists. Uh, you know, you could Google those guys. Uh, uh, Mises, uh, Rothbard, uh, you know, are good economists. Even Friedman from the Chicago School, a lot of good stuff from him. Ayn Rand, I read her stuff. Uh, uh, you know, what are the books, uh, or the first books my dad had me read? Uh, One of them was uh, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. It's a great starter book on economics. People should read that. Uh, I read The Mainstream of Human Progress. It's a very obscure little book. A lot of people probably don't know about it, but it's a great book. Uh, And I read it again as as a teen uh, based on my father's advice. And that was one of the earlier books that I read to kind of get me thinking uh, about a free market economics and getting me to appreciate uh, capitalism. Uh, And as far as understanding the Constitution, you know, you should read uh, the Federalist Papers, uh, give you an understanding of what the framers meant. And then once you finish the Federalist Papers, if you want to read more, read the Elliott Debates. Uh, And then you'll really understand uh, the Constitution and why America uh, is a republic and not a democracy and and, and what the framers intended uh, for this country. Uh, Next up. Peter, do you think that without the world losing trust in American dollars, we may not see a devaluation of the dollar in the years to come? Look, the dollar is going to depreciate. It doesn't get devalued because it has no value, right? When the dollar was worth, 
when it was $35 for an ounce of gold, we devalued, right? Because now we said, okay, the dollar's worth uh, 42, right? Roosevelt devalued the dollar. It was 20 and then it went to 35. Right now, it just depreciates in the market because it has no official valuation, really. It's worth whatever people are willing to give you for it. I think the dollar is going to depreciate to the point that it collapses and then it's no longer the reserve currency. But I think between now and that point, between now and the point where the world loses confidence in the dollar and it completely implodes, it's going to fall quite a bit, right? It's got a long way to fall, I think, before we hit the tipping point where it implodes. Because remember, the dollar has been a lot lower in the past than it is right now. So I think the dollar can decline quite a bit before it becomes a concern. In fact, I think when the dollar really starts to fall, uh, the markets are going to initially look to it as good news. Oh, this is good. It's, they're going to say it's going to help our exporters. It's going to help the markets, right? Certainly going to be good news for the emerging markets. So it's not going to be until it really starts to free fall from lower levels that uh, the, the key confidence ultimately is lost. And I think that that day is coming. Okay, uh, Next question. If a new currency takes the world reserve currency, does that country that owns that currency set the price of gold? No, I don't think another country is going to step up and replace the United States. I don't think the world is going to make the mistake of bestowing that privilege on somebody else. After all, if America abused that privilege, why wouldn't any other nation? Why wouldn't the Eurozone? Why wouldn't Japan? Why wouldn't China? I think once the dollar collapses, the world's not going to be so quick to replace it with another fiat currency. I think the only thing that will work uh, where you can have confidence would be to go back to real money, to go back to gold. Gold was the reserve before the dollar and gold will be the reserve after the dollar. Does it concern you that one third of Franco Nevada of earnings come from Canadian crude? I'm not really sure about that. I'd have to look into that. I mean, I've been a longtime owner of uh, of Franco Nevada. Uh, It's been one of the best performing gold companies, mainly because it's a royalty company. And so it hasn't been bogged down by the increasing costs of mining gold, but it's certainly benefited from the increasing price of gold. But I'm not really sure about that point. I can ask Adrian, though. Uh, about it you know i think it's one of the biggest or maybe even the top holding in the euro pacific gold fund and i've owned it myself ever since it was spun off i forgot you know i got it in a spinoff because it got bought and i forget if it was you know who bought it was it barrack or new somebody bought it and then years ago spun it back off and then it became a a standalone company again i remember i got a bunch of shares in the spinoff because i owned the company that spun it uh, and then I, I even bought more in the market uh, since then because it's been a great stock. And I, I, th- I think it will continue to be a great stock. But again, I can't recommend anything on my podcast. So just don't run out and buy it. Do your own homework or better yet, call up your Pacific Capital. Talk to my representatives. Find out if a stock like this is suitable for you. Uh, and or, you know, again, read the prospectus and buy my uh, my goal fund because we got this stock in there. And any stock that we think you should own is going to be in my in my gold fund. Next question. What's your opinion on holding EUR in comparison to U.S. dollar and gold? Is it safer than the U.S. dollar? Look, gold, I think, is safer than any fiat currency. It will have a little bit more volatility than any given fiat currency, but not that much. Uh, and, you know, nobody's printing gold. I mean, yes, we mine it, but there's a limit to how much gold you can mine. There is no limit to how much fiat can be printed. Um, uh, but, you know, when it comes to the euro, 
versus the dollar? Yes, the euro. As bad as the euro is, as screwed up as the eurozone is, the euro is less screwed up than the dollar. And so I think the euro will lose less purchasing power over time than the U.S. dollar. Um, hybrid life question. What happens if gold mines get nationalized? Uh, do you think it's possible? Yes, it is possible. That's the political risk of the industry. So you have to look at the mines that the companies own and where those mines are located and what is the risk that some politicians steal that. I mean, that's always a risk. And there's a risk in America too, right? And it's usually not that they outright nationalize it. That's not the risk. The risk is that they jack taxes way up or they, they put all kinds of onerous requirements on companies, which I think is going to happen. In fact, I think the political risk is underpriced in the United States. I think people are ignoring uh, political risk that I think is actually quite bigger uh, than the markets perceive, which is another reason that I, I think the U.S. stocks should be avoided in favor of foreign stocks, where I think the political risk is actually lower. And uh, I think this risk is mispriced right now. Um, next question. What would you do with a variable life policy? Would you cash out by term? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm not a big fan of like a whole life policy. Uh, if you actually need insurance, right? I mean, don't buy insurance as an investment. Buy insurance because you need it. Let's say like life insurance, if you are married and you have young children or you have a wife that depends on you and if you die and your income is gone, if you, they're not going to be able to sustain their standard of living without you, then you need to buy insurance. But you don't need insurance for the whole of your life. You just need a term until your kids are old enough to be out on their own and support themselves, right? And stuff like that. So buy the insurance and that way you can buy a lot of insurance for the money. Because if you're young and healthy and you buy term insurance, you can get a lot of coverage for a little bit of money, which is what you want. You want a lot of coverage for a little bit of money, right? Because you're probably not going to die, right? That's why the insurance company is selling you the policy because they don't think they're going to pay off. So because you're probably not going to die, right? The policy isn't that expensive. But if you get one of these whole life policies that has some kind of cash value at the end, well, then you're going to pay a lot of money for that. And it's generally a lousy investment. But sometimes people get a little greedy, right? The way these things are sold, right? These whole life policies. It's like, hey, you know, why pay insurance? You're just wasting your money. You're going to get nothing back. Why don't you pay into this whole life policy? Because then when you don't die, you still have a lot of money. Except what you should be doing is buying your life insurance and hoping it's a complete waste of money, right? I mean, you'd have to be a fool to hope that you cash in on your life insurance, right? You buy it and you hope it's a complete waste of money. Now, it's not a waste of money because you buy peace of mind because you know if something happens to you, your loved ones are taken care of, but you hope that all the money was spent for nothing. You hope that you don't die. But what you do is you buy your term policy and then you take the extra money that you would have paid on the whole life policy and you invest that yourself. Cut out the middleman. I mean, these whole life policies are, are, are massively overloaded with fees and commissions that are buried. You don't even see them, especially these annuities. I, I, mean, I hate it when I see people buying these things, especially in IRAs. You never want to get talked into an annuity in your IRA because it's already, you already got the tax benefits. You don't need the tax benefits of the, of the insurance policy. But you know the, the brokers lie about them. They say there's no cost. There's 8%, 10% off the top 
goes out to the broker. So it's a very inefficient way to invest through a life insurance policy. So don't do it. Just buy term if you need it. And if you don't need the insurance, then don't buy it, right? I mean, if you have plenty of money and if you die, your family is going to be fine, then you don't need the insurance. But just invest your money wisely. And again, if you have cash value in a policy, you know, I think it's going to get wiped out to inflation. I would cancel the policy I had right now, take the cash today before it's worthless, and then invest it in something, right? Get some foreign stocks, get some gold, get a hedge against inflation because that cash value, that policy is going to get wiped out to inflation. Can negative interest rates result in a bank run? Well, in theory, there's not going to be a bank run, right? Because we've got deposit insurance. But, you know, to the extent that people are being forced to pay negative interest rates, then they may want to pull their money out of the bank because then they won't have to pay the negative interest rate, which is a risk that the government is going to have to print a lot of money. Because remember, if everybody wants their money out of the bank, the bank don't have it. So the Federal Reserve is going to have to create out of thin air. So if we have a run on the bank, the bank doesn't default, but there's massive inflation. So you better be in the front of that line because, you know, if you're last to get your money out of the bank, you might not be able to buy anything by the time uh, by the time you get it. Uh, what do you think of silver stocks? Do you prefer the gold miners over the silver miners? Look, you know, silver wheat just hit a 52 week high today. That was a strong stock up eight, nine percent. Uh, look, you know, I think silver is ultimately going to overtake gold as it does in every bull market or as it has in the past. And I think that history is going to repeat. I think we're going to revert to the mean or at least get close to it, if not surpass it. So everything I say about gold probably applies to silver, maybe even more. So silver is probably a better buy than gold. Uh, And same thing would apply to silver stocks. I think silver stocks potentially can have a much bigger return than gold stocks. Now, probably there's a higher degree of risk, right? I mean, you can't get the reward without the risk. Uh, So you've got to uh, weigh the two. Uh, But yeah, you know, again, talk to my brokers at Euro Pacific Capital about the silver stocks that we like. Uh, Or if you buy our gold fund, we have a small allocation. I forget whether it's 10 or 15%. It's a gold fund, so it's got to primarily be in gold stocks. But we do have some pure silver stocks. And of course, remember, a lot of gold miners also mine some silver. So they'll benefit from the rising silver price as well as the rising gold price. Oh, are gold and silver stocks actually gaining value or are the dollar just losing value? No, I think that these companies are going to actually gain value. I don't think if I'm right about what's going to happen to the price of gold, you're not just going to maintain your purchasing power if you invest in miners. You will greatly enhance your purchasing power because I think there's a tremendous leverage effect. I think the price of these gold stocks will increase uh, by a multiple of the increase in the price of gold. So I don't look at gold stocks as a way to preserve wealth. I look at it as a way to greatly enhance your wealth, which of course comes with risk. So if you just want to preserve your wealth, then buy the bullion. If you want to try to really enhance your wealth, then uh, get into the the mining stocks. Um, Next question. Oh, the last question, finally. (laughs) Um, This is from CF. That last one was from George Shumpiff. Anyway, this question your opinion about Mike Maloney saying that Barron's gold mining index indicates that the miners will always lag gold, miners price in gold. He has said not to buy them. Uh, you know, I'm not familiar with uh, Mike Maloney's uh, statement on not buying gold stocks. I know that gold stocks have been bad investments over periods of time. And I know a lot of gold stocks 
uh, and the management teams have been good destroyers of capital. Uh, certainly during the last bull market, I think there were a lot of mistakes that were made and that really positioned companies poorly for the bear market that I think is over. But I think a lot of these companies now are very, very well positioned. I think a lot of them uh, learned their lessons. And uh, I think that there's a lot of value in these gold mining stocks. And I think if Mike Maloney is ignoring that, I think he's making a mistake. You know, I mean, I Mike's a good guy. I know him. He lives here in Puerto Rico. Uh, he's in the gold business, just like me. We also have an opposite of opinion on Bitcoin. Uh, he's been very receptive to recommending Bitcoin over the years, whereas I have not. Uh, so he says speculate in Bitcoin. I say speculate in gold mining stocks. I think if you want to gamble, that's the way to do it. And I do think there's much more upside. But I agree for somebody who just wants to conserve their wealth, if you're a really rich guy, right? Let's say, you know, you're Warren Buffett. You don't need any gold stocks. You got all the money you need. What you're worried about is inflation wiping out the value of your money. So buy a bunch of gold. It doesn't matter if gold stocks go up more. You don't need any more money. You've already got more money than you can possibly spend. So if you're a younger guy and you want to take advantage of the increase in the price of gold and you want to speculate a little bit on how high it might go, I think the reward to investors in gold stocks. Now, again, you know, not all gold stocks are the same. Uh, there's risks inherent in any business. And there's a lot of specialized risks, risks that are particular and unique to mining stocks that you know other companies may not have those risks. That's why you want to have a guy like Adrian Day managing your portfolio, picking your stocks, and then monitor, monitoring those picks after they're made. So I think you know, you'll sleep better at night knowing that Adrian is on the job picking your stocks and, and, and managing your portfolio, which is why I'm recommending that people buy my gold fund uh, and let you know Adrian manage it. Uh, and I think we're going to make a lot of money. Again, I could be wrong. We could lose money, right? You got to decide for yourself whether or not you want to take the risks. But that decision is going to be made with everything you do. There's a risk in everything you do, including holding cash, right? So you have to weigh the risks and the rewards and you have to make a decision. You know, what do you think is likely to happen? Obviously, it's possible that gold stocks could go down, but you're only going to buy them if you think they're going to go up, right? If I didn't think they were going to go way up, I wouldn't buy them. Yes, I know I could be wrong and they can go down, but it's because I don't think that I'm wrong that I'm investing as much money as I am. But I know that I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm going to lose money. And if that happens, it happens. And that's what you have to do when you speculate. You have to know that if you lose the money that you were speculating with, then it's okay. I lost some money, right? That's, you know, I'll speculate on something else and maybe I'll make the money, right? You're not going to win 100% of the time when you're speculating. But personally, I think the risk reward right now is so skewed in favor of mining stocks. I think the upside is tremendous relative to the downside. And I think the probability of realizing that upside is very, very high. Uh, oh, and as long as I mentioned Bitcoin, I know there were some people that were giving me uh, some shit, some of the Bitcoiners, because Bitcoin had a pretty good week and I did not mention it. And yes, Bitcoin rallied, um, you know, it's off the highs. In fact, a couple of days ago, Bitcoin got all the way up. Let me check here how high it got. It got to oh, about 9,100 9, almost, it looks like. A little over 9,000. As we're, I'm speaking right now, it's about 8,700, 8,800 actually. So not that far uh, uh, from the high. So we had, we, had, we had a pretty big run. Uh, but 
again, I don't think that means anything. You know, I there's obviously a lot of speculative money in Bitcoin. Uh, some money came in. You know, we're getting closer and closer to the halving. And so, you know, it doesn't surprise me that we're getting some speculative money flowing into it. Uh, but to me, again, it, the long-term chart still looks really bad. It still looks like a busted bubble. And it still looks like it's a massive bear market. And bear markets have rallies, right? The U.S. stock market just had a rally. Bitcoin had a rally. In fact, uh, Bitcoin is trading uh, much more in line with the stock market than it is with the gold market. Uh, so it is trading like a risk asset, not like a safe haven. And so if you're looking for a safe haven, then don't look at Bitcoin. You can look at gold. If you're looking to speculate, I still wouldn't look at gold. I mean, I still wouldn't look at Bitcoin. I would look at gold mining stocks and silver mining stocks. For my money, that's a much better bet. It's a much better risk reward. Thank you.